Well, tonight is a really special part of the uh, of the book of Hosea because we're going to see a turn of events, especially as we near the last, the end of chapter thirteen, chapter fourteen, of not only God's promises to Israel, but His true character all along. You know, sometimes in the middle of reading of ju- the judgment of God and how he brings judgment upon his people, we must not get, you know, obscured, or, or, or I should say, let it blind the fact that judgment is always meted out in mercy. And I wanted to read something starting out from uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. I just want to read this. It says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting King. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. You know, that's a, uh, that's a solemn, that's not only a solemn warning for the nations, that is a solemn comfort to us. Because God is going to allow evil to run its course, and yet he has everything perfectly under control. <clears throat> Last week we ended up in chapter nine. You know, I'm, I, I, I got to be honest tonight. I'm, I'm a little bit, a uh, little bit apprehensive about the Dara boys going down there. And I pray that uh, will you please keep them in your prayers. You know, uh, we're in a battle here, and uh, we need to be bold. Call it the way it is, and we need to pray for these young men. Because a part of our family. Tonight, I uh, I have asked the Lord that we would see His mercy and, and His faithfulness in a new way tonight. I've, I've been going through this book so much these last couple weeks, get, trying to get absorbed into you know the prophets. As we started out, remember when we started the book of Isaiah? We, we we noticed that the prophets not only speak about prophecy, and we know the things of God through prophecy, but we come to know God Himself through prophecy. We get to know the character of God, and I think that is sorely lacking today. You know, it really is. I mean, we have all kinds of doctrine. We have all kinds of study material. We have all kinds of excellent teachers out there, and praise God for that. But I think, uh, you know, the pastors I've talked to in the last couple of years, a couple that I've sat under and others, is the character of God that is really kind of being askewed today. What is God really like? How is he handling the situations today? How is he handling the world, world the word today through the word. That's how he's handling it. And that might sound kind of funny, but he is handling the world today through his word, through his prophets, through his prophetic word, and we get to know his character. I want to know God's character. His character of love. You know, we have so many uh, movies out there and so much literature, and I was just reading today, um, there's a famous singer by the name of Alan Peterson. I don't know if you've, you've known him. I don't know him. Um, but uh, his, his religion is love, and uh, his doctrine is, is uh, something other to that effect. And he's pretty popular, and, and uh, but there's so many people out there today that think, God, the only character that we need to look at is love. God, yes, is love. 
But God is also a judging God, and he will judge sin. And a perfect, righteous, holy God is also a perfect, righteous, holy judge. And when we understand the judgment of God, we understand a little bit more what Jesus did for us on the cross. He took the judgment that we deserve. And God is not going to let me in to his heaven because he loves me and he's going to let me slide. He's going to let me into heaven because the righteous wrath of judgment fell on his son for me. God does not let up on his judgment because I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because my judgment fell on Christ. That's what being a Christian is. His mercy is what gives judgment the last thing that God will do. He pleads and pleads and pleads and pleads and says, your sin is causing judgment to fall on you, and he's pleading to come to him. That's why we're here. We're not here to uh, anything other than to plead with men, to come to Christ. Wow. Well, as I said last week in chapter 9, we ended with an amazing thing. God said in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 33, we ended off in this, in this scripture. He says, and I will scatter you among the heathen or among the nations and will draw out a sword after you and your land shall be desolate and your cities lay waste. God said from the beginning that this is what's going to happen, that judgment is going to come and yet God is constantly through his prophets pleading to, to turn from your idols, to turn. He's given everybody opportunity to turn. And as we get into these, uh, these latter chapters, chapter 10, 11, 12, and 13, 14 especially, we're going to see something. I think it's sewed up in the fact of, look at verse 12 real quick of chapter 10. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Jeremiah echoes that in Jeremiah chapter 4 as well. You know, when you look at the Christian life, well, let's turn here real quick to Romans chapter 6. We have time. Romans chapter 6. You know, there's an erroneous idea in modern, what I call plastic Christianity, is that because we're Christians, we're surrounded, we're surrounded by such an umbrella of grace that we not need to uh, follow hard after righteousness. We not need to worry about sin in our life because it's already been taken care of. Grace covers everything, right? No, grace covers our sin problem. Grace covers our sin. We live in grace we walk in grace. We're going to be delivered in grace. Grace starts the moment that we, that we come to Christ. Our sins are forgiven. And God causes us to be born again in grace. We're walking through this life in grace. It's unmerited favor. In other words, it's favor that God bestowed upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Or as you read the numeric standard, he lavished it on us. God just lavished this grace upon us. 
But as we see in Titus and other places, this grace teaches us something. And that's to walk circumspectly, to make the most of the days because the days are evil. You know, Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with or rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now, you can follow that, and I just start here. You can start anywhere in the Bible you want to, but in the New Testament, if you want to see what God, how God views the Christian life, let's start looking here. And he's saying, this is what I've done for you. Now you need to enter into that by faith and belief. I've given you the Holy Spirit. I've given you the power. Now it's, it's, you need to come in the Scriptures, believe every word of it, and live accordingly. There's a lot of Christians that are going to get to heaven by the skin of their teeth, so to speak, because when God saves a soul, he saves under the merit of Christ. But there's going to be a lot of people that are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and there's going to be a lot of regret. You know? But you follow from you know, Romans 6, 6, all the way through Paul's epistles, and, and sin. God deals with even the Christian with the sin in their life. God is constantly calling us to throw away the sin. We just read in Hebrews, throw away the sin that so easily entangles us. So we see in the Old Testament, God's pleading with his people to throw off the sin, throw off the idols, come and worship me. And we also see that in the Christian life. And the reason why I bring that up is because are we saved in grace? Absolutely. Are we saved by works? Never. But the people in the Old Testament were saved by grace. We never must forget that either. That's where the Lamb comes in. God had his, his, his righteousness summarized in the Ten Commandments, but the Lamb was there as provision for our shortness, our sin, and that is also grace. I hope this comes together. I'm so excited about tonight. Well, if some of you can't have... If, 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 it, uh, if it's hard to, uh, to stay a couple minutes later, I apologize. But... Um, Wow. We need to understand the character of God. We are forgiven. I'm as much justified right now as I will be if God will allow me to live another 50 years of fruitful Christian ministry. That's a great thing to know. But that doesn't make me realize, that doesn't make me say, well, you know, hey, I'm saved, and so now I'm going to really just go on and, you know, hey, in God's eyes, the body's dead because of sin anyway, Right? So I'm going to live loosely, or, or I'm going to live uh, a little bit haphazardly. But God says we need to live circumspectly, because the days are evil. We're to live as abiding in Him, because at any moment He's going to come back. And we don't want to. We don't want to shrink away in shame at His coming. Why would that be? Why would God say something like that? Because there is a possibility of of taking it easy. And, and leaning on grace to the point where it's causing us a false sense of security, if you will. I believe in security. We are eternally kept. Once Christ does new, lose none of his sheep. I'm not talking about that. Please don't get me uh, confused here. I'm not talking about your eternal rest in Christ. I'm talking about your walk, your day-to-day -day walk. 
So in, in Hosea, in chapter 9, verse 17, we ended with, My God will cast them away, because they did not obey him. And they shall be wanderers among the nations. Does that mean God cast them off forever? No. We know Paul says in, in Romans, he didn't cast his people away. You know? He's dealing with them. Israel empties his vine. Chapter 10, he brings forth fruit for himself. <clears throat> According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars. According to the bounty of his land, they have embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. They are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. For now they say, we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely and making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like a hemlock in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of beth Avon, For its people mourn for it and its priests shrink for it because its glory has departed from it. The idol has also been carried to Assyria as a present for King Jerob. Now that's going to be an interesting verse when we get back to it. present. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Also the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us. That's another interesting verse we'll get to. O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gebeth. There they stood, the battle of Gebeth against the children of iniquity, do not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain, but I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his claws. Sow for yourselves righteousness, verse 12, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you trusted in your own way, and the multitude of mighty men, therefore a tumult shall rise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered, as Shaman plundered Beth Abel in the day of battle, a mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel. Because of your great wickedness at the dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. That's strong language. You see, as we're going in Hosea, we started out with, with remember Hosea married Gomer, and Gomer was going on, and, and God permitted that, and I believe that it was literal. But I also believe that as the prophet saw the unfaithfulness of Gomer, he also saw the mercy of God breaking in. Because in there, we have mixed it with the, the great explanation that Paul did in the book of Romans. Then they that are not called my people will be called my people. It is a constant wooing of these people to God. And yet at the same time, the wooing and mercy is the pronouncement of judgment. That's where watchmen come in. Ezekiel was a watchman, for example. They sit on the wall of, of 
They sat on the wall surrounding Jerusalem, so to speak, and they watched for the danger coming in. They're watchmen. I think they're watchmen today. I know that God has called me and my own immediate family here to denounce false teaching when it comes in. You know, to warn people that you're not going right. To warn people that don't take grace for granted. Relish in it. Yes, enjoy it. But also know that God has given us grace so that we might please him in everything we do. See, grace doesn't give a license to sin. Grace gives us a license not to sin. It gives us a whole reason not to. Otherwise, if we sin casually and we take grace lightly, we don't understand it. Because to understand grace, it costs God everything. Well, let me tell you what. Grace was occasioned by mercy. We were helpless and undone, and he saw you helpless and in shackles of sin, dead in sin, apart from him. He created you, and you're apart from him, and all the misery and shame that caused. And in mercy, he said, I love you. I love you so much that I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send my own son that's grace. Mercy opened that door and grace flooded in or it lavished upon us. And it causes us an attitude of sitting down and saying, Lord, I don't deserve it. How could you love somebody like me? That's contrition of heart. So if I'm saved by grace because of Christ, God has made provisions for his people to walk in a way that pleases him. You know, Jesus said something that was profound that nobody could have ever said nor ever can say this side of heaven. I do everything that pleases my Father. And we are to imitate him. And we can imitate him because we have the spirit inside of us. You know... From chapter 6 through 13 is God's response to Israel's plight. And if you don't remember much of these studies, um, go back and, and, and look through them. Israel right now is, is coming close to judgment. And God is pleading with Israel now, not as not as he used Gomer as an illustration of faithfulness. They've gone way, way beyond that. Let's get into this. So at verse 8 of chapter 10, like the high places of Avon is the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorns and thistles shall grow on their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us. You know, you don't have to turn there, but... In prophecy, we have a, a lot of times a near fulfillment with a farther fulfillment, or the greater fulfillment, if you will. We'll see that several times today. In fact, we're going to see today how much Genesis plays a part in laying the groundwork of prophecy and how the book of Revelation is the capstone of all prophecy. So you have, a, you have two perfect bookends, if you will, the groundwork in, in uh, Genesis of prophecy going all through the Bible, and then you have Revelation that caps that whole prophecy. Um, 
But if you want to keep your finger there, turn to Luke 23 if, if you want. This is interesting. Luke 23, and if not, listen, you, you all know this, I'm sure. Uh, it's just a, a, a prophecy that Jesus uttered as he was going to the cross. Absolutely fulfilling his word. This is God in human flesh that caused the prophets to rise up early and send them. This is God in human flesh that, that breathed in, in his words into the prophets. Luke 23, starting verse 27. And a great multitude of people followed him, and women who had also mourned and lamented him. Remember, by this time, uh, there was a gentleman, a Simon of Cyrene, had to carry his cross because Jesus was... Well, he was beaten to the point of not only non-recognition, but he was beaten bad. And uh, so at this point, the multitude and the women were following, mourning and lamenting. And look at verse 28. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. You know what he's saying is there's a time coming that it's not going to go well with them. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and your children. Verse 29, for indeed the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren, wounds that never bore, breasts that never nursed, and they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? If they're doing these things when the word is fresh and actually the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, what are they going to do in the dry? What are they going to do when these things are, are coming to pass? So back in, in Hosea 10.8, the high places, thorns and thistles are all that's happening from your altar. There's nothing that's coming from it. There's no good. There's no righteousness. Remember Paul says there's no one that does good. No, not even one. The way of peace they have not known. He's saying that to the Gentiles now. God is saying that to his people. You're walking in a way that all you're producing is thorns and briars. And Jesus said that he <coughs> longs that we would abide in him, that we would bear fruit, and our fruit remain, and the Father would be glorified. And they shall say to us, and to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. I'm going to read 9, 10, 11 real quick, and we'll get into the meat of our message tonight. O Israel, you have sinned again from the days of Gebath. There they stood, the battle of Gebath against the children of iniquity. I don't have time to go into the battle of Gebath, but look it up. It's interesting. Do not overtake them, or excuse me, did not overtake them. When it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them when I bind them for their two transgressions. Ephraim, remember, Ephraim was the ten northern tribes that Hosea called Israel. Israel or Ephraim was the largest of the ten northern tribes. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh grain. But I harnessed her fair neck. I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall break his clods. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground. 
It's time to seek the Lord. And my friends, without getting, without spiritualizing the text, it is time to seek the Lord. It really is. It is not time to play around with our Christianity. It is time to know him, to know what pleases him, and to walk that way. And not to compromise. To call a spade a spade. But do it in love. It's time that the pastors and, and preachers in this land preach the word and teach doctrine. But part of preaching the word is preaching the character of God, the character of Jesus Christ. And if we have an idea of grace that we can kind of loosen up and we're a Christian and because we're a Christian, we're, we're somehow uh, exempt from closely watching our life, we are missing the boat here. Paul tells Timothy to not only watch your doctrine closely, which is being desecrated today, but watch your life. Watch your life as closely as you watch your doctrine. And walk that way. Because Jesus is coming. It's time to break up our fellow ground. He says, verse 13, you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. These were God's people. These were God's covenant people, the apple of his eye that have gone through and, and have the witness of the prophets. Why do you think Hebrews 11 is there? It's for a testimony of righteous living for us. How God delights in upright living. God delights in upright conduct. God delights when we don't freak out, as it will, over circumstances. When God delights when we rest in him, no matter what the storm is of our life. Therefore, look at verse 14. Tumult shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be plundered. As Shelman plundered Beth Arbel in the day of battle, a mother dashed to pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be cut off utterly. Wow. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. You know, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, it says, When he arose, it took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Remember, because Herod wanted to kill him. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord. That's the correct translation. It was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I call my son. This prophecy has a different, deeper, eternal truth here. Or I should say a deeper, eternal truth right here. That Israel was called a son to God, and yet the greater son was coming whom he would call out of Egypt. Sometimes a prophet will give a prophecy and will be on like two mountains and he'll see, the, he'll see the coming of Christ and he'll see the next peak, the second coming of Christ, and he will not see the church age. 
It was hidden from him. Peter says the same thing. Of what prophets long to look into what time or who it was that the Spirit of Christ was in them, ministering to us. If some of it was a mystery, and I'm sure a lot of these things to the prophets as they spoke them were mysteries that were to Daniel. Daniel asked for understanding. But it's a great prophecy. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, he called him out of Egypt, miraculously delivered him, but the greater son, the son of God, God the son, would later be called back out of Egypt to grow and die for the sin of the world. As they called them, verse 2, so they went from them and they sacrificed to the Baals. They burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. Verse 5, he says, He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refused to repent. They refused to repent. They refused to return to the Lord. Some people will not heed the message of the gospel. They will constantly go and tell they are either dead or God gets them to a point where they can't go anywhere and they can't go further and he will judge them. The Assyrian, in verse 5, shall be his king because they refuse to repent. Let's, let's go on here. This is interesting. Verse 6, And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Look at that, verse 7. They're bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, None at all exalt him. These are good. This is God's chosen people. Well, let me go back a little bit. If we, if we want to go back and see in the early cradle of the civilization, if you will, how God spoke to his people. He spoke as to Abraham, Abram when he came out. He said that I'm going to make you a father of many nations. He changed his name to Abraham. He told him, I have a making covenant with you. This land I promised you, it will be yours. But I also promise that the seed coming through your body will produce my Messiah. And out of you are going to come the true Israel, my true people, the seed from your wife, Sarah. But you are going to lapse and you're going to go into another woman named Hagar. And you're going to produce a son. And his name is going to be Ishmael. But the promise and the seed is going to be through Isaac. And yet the seed of Hagar and the seed of Sarah are at war even to this day. So we have a, a pure stream, if you will, that is flowing through God's chosen seed. And the prophets built 
bear eloquent testimony. Now, when the seed of his chosen people choose to walk in the way of the world, God has pleading with them, and he's going to judge them. And the falsity of today is that that line of prophecy had to end somewhere. In other words, where did it end? And what prophet did it end? Malachi? In other words, Israel will never cease to exist. It will always exist. We were reading the other night, my wife and I, where in Zechariah, a third of Israel will be saved. That's it. But God will bring them under his rod of judgment and cleanse them to the astonishment of the world. We will already be with him. We will be witnessing them. The Antichrist, who is, is, is controlled by Satan and his fierce hatred, white-hot hatred against Israel, cannot wipe them out. He will be the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ will be the marvel of the world that can save his people through such. But yet, he is so full of righteousness and holiness that he's going to judge his people. But they're bent on backsliding from me. I know that those of you that have had children that have done that, you know exactly what God, how his anguish is here. When his people backslide from him, that takes an act of the will, by the way. It is grievous to him. And that's why Paul says that for us now, we can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit, quench the, the power of the Spirit and the ministry he wants to do through us, but we can also grieve him by being in sin. Remember, Malachi 3.6, I'm telling you, it's going to sort out a, a barrage of problems. If we, we so many people have a tendency of, of carrying over the character of God in the Old Testament to the character of God in the New Testament. And Malachi tells you why. There shouldn't be a problem because I, the Lord God, I change not. He is love. He's justice and he's mercy. Look at the flood. People say, well, Noah was perfect. No, Noah was not perfect. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah and seven other individuals came through. I believe that God's mercy is so great, it's probably the other seven wrote on the credit of Noah. Nonetheless, they came through. The mercy of God. The remnant. He always has a remnant. And in his church, he is calling and pleading with his church. He has a remnant a body, the true body of Christ in the midst of all this professing garbage out there. And that's where we're at right here with his people. So he says in verse 12, chapter 11, Ephraim has encircled me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Okay, hold on to your hands. Here we go. He's faithful. That is an interesting statement he would make at the end of chapter 11, because chapters 12, 13, 14, we're to see this faithful God in action. It is wonderful. Ephraim feeds on the wind chapter 12, and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians. Can you imagine that? 
and oil is carried to Egypt. Ephraim feeds on the wind. Remember back in chapter 8, verse 7? They sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. That's chapter 8, verse 7. Remember when we were there? They're sowing the wind. They're going to reap the whirlwind. That's what sin does. That's what walking further and further and further away from the Lord. It gets easier and easier and easier to sin, and we build up a callus. And the next thing you know, we're caught in the whirlwind. There's nothing we can do but to repent from it. He feeds on the wind. He pursues the east wind. And he's making a covenant with the Syrians. Verse 2, The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob. According to his ways, according to his deeds, he will recompense him. Wow. That's what judgment does. You go, they go so far into sin that God's going to judge you according to that sin. Think about this for a minute, folks. If God would allow us to go on our way, he would have judged us according to our sin. We're steeped in sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But the, my judgment and your judgment was laid on Christ. But those that don't have Christ that are going to stand before God at the great white throne judgment, he is going to judge them fairly and exactly according to their sin. And after that horrible existence of of must seem like eternity standing for a holy God, they're banished away. You want to relish in your sin? You want to die in your sin? You want to forsake me? There you go. That's a fearful statement in verse 2. And he will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. Look at verse 3. He took his brother by the heel in the womb. Here we go. We're starting to go back to Genesis. He, talking about Jacob, took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. First of all, remember Genesis 25, verse 26? After that came out his brother and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, and his name was Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when he born. Remember Isaac and Rebekah. God had told Rebekah, there, there are two nations in your womb. Way back, Genesis, the cradle of the race. Then he says, in, that, in the last part of verse 3, and in his strength, he struggled with God. Well, we all know Genesis chapter 32. You know, I want to go back there. If you can, if you want to keep your thumb here, and we're going to be for a little bit, you can turn there, and if not, that's fine. Genesis 28 will be in Genesis 29, Genesis 32. So maybe if you want to just keep your thumb there, it's just uh, wonderful to go back and see these things. Go back to Genesis 30, 32. Wow. God in his in his word. Let's look at verse 24. Then Jacob was alone left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. 
Verse 25, now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, the angel said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. These, these names, Jacob, Israel, Isaac, these names aren't just thrown around for a, uh, a story-wise. They mean something. You take the prophets, the seed of the prophets, go all the way back to the, to the book of Genesis. He struggled with God and his strength. In verse 4, yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. This is a wonderful passage. Again, if you want to go back to Genesis 28, Bethel, you hear about that a lot. But there's significance. I think this will be a, just a wonderment to you. It is to me. By the way, do you spend very much time in Genesis? It's, it's a wonderful place to, to be. In Bethel. <laughs> Jacob goes down, verse 10, from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place, verse 11, and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it on his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Look at verse 12. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and your descendants. <clears throat> you know, John chapter 1, 51, chapter 3, verse 13, they perfectly fit in Genesis. Jesus said, you'll see the angels of God descending upon the Son of Man ascending. This is nothing other than the Son of God. But he went down to Bethel, and he had, he was, had that revelatory dream, if you will, of this ladder that was set up. Well, as we go on to look at that, God had promised the land, but God had also promised a seed. He promised a redeemer. And it went through that line, and there you have it. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 is when this fight started. When God said to Satan, to the serpent, I am going to strike your head, and I'm going to do it with my coming Redeemer. And so the fight is always over people walking with God, people honoring God, people lifting up God, people doing His will versus idol worship, versus Baal worship. Versus pride and arrogancy. But it all starts back in the cradle of the race. Let's go on back in Hosea. Look at verse 5. That is the Lord of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. Oh, wait a minute. That's a peculiar verse. The Lord is his memorable name. Back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, listen to this. God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Compare that with John 8, 58. Before Abraham was, 
I am. So we have Jacob and Bethel. We have Moses getting spoken to about I am out of the bush. We have Jesus in John 8, 58. And then to go on, he says, And God said moreover to Moses, Thus shall you say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, verse 15 of Exodus 3. And this is my memorial unto all generations. Unto all generations. The memorial is, I am that I am. God will not be rivaled. God is worthy of all of our worship. Anything that is apart from that is sin, and sin produces havoc. I wish more Christians would understand that. You know, there's a time in everybody's life when they become a Christian, when they, when they know that, and they're starting to understand that. And for those of us who have been taught well and have been in the Word of God, we see how sin absolutely is grievous to the Lord. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christians, but to prove, our proof is our works. Our proof is our life. And these his people were proving more and more and more that they were going after the world. They were going after idols. They were forsaking the Lord, and his judgment was coming. As I told you I, last week, the week before, the Assyrian invasion was brutal. It was swift and brutal. That's what they were known for. But here's the mercy of God. God did not allow them to wipe them out. If God would allow the Assyrians to finish their task, there would be no more. Israel. God in mercy stopped the Assyrians from wiping out the ten northern tribes and in his mercy, I believe, sent Judah into captivity for 70 years where they at least could build houses and live and they knew they were in captivity where God gave the great revelations to Daniel and so forth, gave favor to kings, to Cyrus and so forth, to allow the remnant to come back and rebuild their, their wall and their temple. We get that in Ezra and Nehemiah. We see the remnant flowing through there. God is ever merciful. If he wanted to wipe out in judgment, he would do it, but his day of his grace is running out. I had a man one time came to me that I think I told this story to you before. We were just starting starting ministry quite some years ago. And he said, well, you know, I, I, uh, I would love to teach one of these nights, but I just don't see how you can preach the gospel out of the Old Testament. Really? Remember our verse in Revelation 19, 10, that Jesus... The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. If we know that, the book hangs together. That's what we're trying to show, going back to Genesis, going back to the beginnings. You can't get around the fact that God says, I am that I am. And because I'm holy, 
I am going to exact judgment. Peter, Peter looked back to the Old Testament when he said, the Lord God is holy, therefore I want you to be holy. Be holy in all your behavior. What's the character of God like? Well, we do know what his memorial is to all generations. That he is, I am, has sent me to you. And that's my memorial unto all the generations. So you, by the help of your God, return, verse 6. Observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. A cunning Canaanite, deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I've become rich. I have found wealth for myself. And all my labors, they shall find me no iniquity that is sin. What does God say to the church in Laodicea? And in Sardis. But in Laodicea, it's, it's more pertinent. They're saying, hey, we have needed nothing. We, are, we have needed nothing. Has things changed? God dealt with his people in judgment that say the same thing. Hey, we don't have any sin. We're rich. What do you mean? We're good people. There's no sin or iniquity in me. And as they were leaving God out of their life, and oppressing him by, by allowing him to witness their Baal worship and their idol worship, what is, what is the church in the Laodiceans, or the last day's church, I believe, the apostate church doing? Jesus is outside trying to get in, and they won't let him in. He said, I'm knocking on the door. If anyone hears my voice and lets me in to a church that says, we don't have need of anything. God's going to judge this apostate church. People don't like to hear that. People in the lukewarm churches don't like to hear that. People that go to these big mega churches that are so apostate, all they care about is signs and wonders. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear God's going to judge this apostate church. He is. He's going to judge you and I at his judgment seat for the rewards of the life that we lived. Praise Christ. It's not going to be for our sins. But he's going to judge an apostate church that professes to know him and does not or has fallen from revealed truth and said, you know what, I don't believe in that anymore. This is full of myth and fairy tales. I told you what Rodney Howard Brown said back in the 90s. He said, I'd rather be in a church filled with signs in a devilish church, then in a church that nothing is going on. And this is this guy swept across Africa and North America with this Toronto blessing, this laughter movement, and the signs and wonders. It caught on to John Arnott. It caught on to all these people. A lot of the vineyard churches weren't apostate because of this. Is not God going to judge this? Yes, he's going to judge it. But yet he always has his remnant his church, his body, that they've been sealed with the Spirit, that they've been baptized, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, into the body of Christ. He says in, the, in uh, Ephesians and other places that they're sealed with the Spirit. Wow. 
Verse 9 says, But I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. Remember we talked last week about what they were doing is they were they were apostatizing excuse me the uh, the feast of tabernacles they were bringing in prostitutes and they were they were laying with the watches of grain and they were making his feast of tabernacles uh, wicked he says in the days coming I will appoint that feast and if you look if you read the book of Ezekiel in the latter temple they're going to go back to worshiping the Lord and animal sacrifices and having those feasts. God will enact it, but he will enact it purely and wholly because he was with his people as he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And as they dwelled in tents in the wilderness, he was there. Verse 10, I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. I don't know about you, but you know, God has spoken by the prophets. He's multiplied visions. He's given people like Daniel and so forth, Jacob. He's given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Look at verse 11. Though Galeed has idols, surely they are vanity. Though they sacrifice bulls and Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Israel served for a spouse. And for a wife, he tended sheep. Does that ring a bell? Remember back in Genesis chapter 29? He labored seven years. Laban tricked him. He labored another seven years. And it seemed to him as nothing. As nothing. Again, God's faithfulness was shown not only through the prophets, to the message of the prophets, but by his people. Verse 13, by a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet, he was preserved. Who's he talking about? Moses. Moses actually said of the Lord Jesus Christ that, you're, that God is going to rise up a prophet like me, out of the midst of your brethren. Even then he was pointing to the Messiah. Exodus 12, verse 15, 51, says this, Thus did all the children of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. And it came to pass the selfsame day that the Lord did bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their armies. God always has a witness. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly, verse 14. Therefore his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his approach upon him. Look at chapter 13 real quick. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say to them, Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away. They have no substance to them. 
like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. You know what Isaiah 43, 11 says, a great, great witnessing tool for Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. What does Paul write to Titus in Titus 1, 4? To Titus, my own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. There's something happening here. God has a remnant, and he loves his people, and he is going to save them. Yes, he's going to let them go through judgment. Let them have their way. But God is going to save them, and he's going to provide a Savior. He is merciful. I don't mean to ever beat a dead horse. But I will never understand how somebody who can buy into the fact that the church has replaced Israel, how they can match these scriptures with the fact that God says, I am the Savior. Besides me, there is none else. How Jesus comes back and saves a third part of Israel, cleanses them, washes them, and ushers them into his kingdom and allows them to be the erratic agents of his kingdom and so forth. We could go on all night because they err. They don't know the power of God nor the scriptures. How could that be? Those wonderful men of God that have been for years and years and years teaching the Bible and they're buying into this. What have you done to the character of God? You've just taken his faithfulness and you've dumped it. As one commentator I was listening to yesterday, he said, if God's faithfulness is dumped with Israel, what, is, what kind of assurance does that give me? That doesn't give me any assurance at all. Because I know what my heart's like. Paul uses three wonderful chapters in Romans to tell me what I'm like, and that's why people don't like it. Some of you can attest the fact that years ago we were teaching in that, and they didn't like those three chapters, and they wanted me out, and a host of other people. The first chapter of Romans alone was contested in the early 90s in Congress because they didn't like the fact that it spoke against homosexuality. It spoke against people walking in their wicked ways, and God is going to judge for that. He must. <clears throat> Wow. Jesus Christ, our Savior. I think that everyone who, who, uh, who hears these words are doubly accountable. Just as the man who has a double issuance of sin. He was born in sin with a sin nature, and he sins because he's a sinner. But the one who rejects Christ and constantly hears the word of Christ, he is doubly accountable. You know, from here to the end of Hosea uh, is Israel's ultimate blessing in the kingdom. You know, I think I'll 
I think I'll end here. You know, one thing I want to say before we we end this next week is chapter 14 is among the most beautiful in the Bible, describing God's love for his people Israel. Because he says in the fatherless finds mercy, he promises they will heal their backsliding, he will love them freely, he will be like the dew to Israel on the ground, and so on and so forth. You know, going through the word, remember that prophecy teaches you not only what's going to happen in the, and how God plays everything out, we see that how God, the Bible is the word of God by fulfilled prophecy. But again, we also, you must not miss this point, through prophecy we see the character of God. And if God shows mercy on our idol-worshiping, wayward people, he shows mercy upon me. He saved me, not on good deeds that I have done, but by his grace. He freely saved us in Jesus Christ. Or anything anybody wants to say? Very difficult sometimes in these chapters to, who am I? Who am I to? But the Spirit of God will bring to, uh, to our heart what the Word says. God loves you with an everlasting love, but He will judge sin. He will judge sin. And he will judge the, the bad that stand before him. He's going to be a good judge and not judge them on the things that they've done good, but he will judge them on the things that they have done wrong, the sin that they have in their life. That's the fallacy of saying, well, judge, my good deeds have outweighed my bad deeds, so I hope I'm good enough to get to heaven. Because, see, our good deeds are never good enough. Israel's good deeds was never good enough. They were saying, hey, I know God, but they weren't exalting him. They weren't forgetting him, or said they were forgetting him. They were not paying him his rightful due. And they went on in a false security. That's what's going to happen in the last days. And the prophet Jeremiah says, my people are going to say, hey, safe and peace, safety, safety, when there is no safety. Judgment is coming. And for us that are safe in Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. But for those that are right in the fence, that haven't made a decision, that think they can live their life without Christ, they're headed for judgment. And people say, well, hey, wait a minute. I thought all Israel were going to be saved. No, the spiritual posterity of Abraham through the seed of Isaac and Jacob, those will be saved. Only a third will be saved. I don't have a reason for why God does things. He does them the way he does them. But he calls us to examine ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith. Do we love him? Let's give our life to him. This is what the prophets teach. You know, I've heard the prophets being taught several different ways. 
And I think that a little mixture of both is good, but prophets I've heard taught strictly from a historical point of view. These things historically happened, and that's wonderful. That is, is, is very instructive, the fact that all these things, like remember when we were in Daniel, they can pinpoint these times. They have found, they have found documents that validify the word of God and so forth. But there is also a point of teaching the prophets where that Jesus in the testimony is the spirit of the prophets. What does the word say as far as the spirit of the prophets? And it has a lot to say about it. I want to end with this. This is just good to, to think about. Because you and I, as born-again Christians, will be there with Christ, witnessing this. This is going to be a fearful thing. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire with the brimstone where the beast and the false prophet already are. So in other words, a thousand years before, the beast and the false prophet, the Antichrist, have been cast into the lake of fire. So they've been there a thousand years. They're still there. So at the end of the thousand-year millennium, God allows the devil, Satan, to come out of the abyss and deceive the nations. That's how fair God is. You know, that is another thing that absolutely wipes this Calvinistic attitude out. God gives people a choice. Love dictates this. So after a thousand years of, of this kingdom where sin is judged rapidly and everything is going wonderfully, Satan's allowed to go out and roam and, and deceive the nations. So the nations come against the camp of God. Can you imagine that? Well, God's the greatest, uh, as I heard in one movie, I can't remember which one it is right now, but he's the greatest defense attorney. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And guess what? God plucks Satan and throws him into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet have been for a thousand years, burning in torment. Who runs hell? God does. And the devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire, again, which burns with brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. But listen to this. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. This is where it's all culminating, isn't it? This is where it's all coming. I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Wow, this is God. The veil of everything is, is, is gone. And only the sinner and this righteous holy God are face to face. And there was found no place for them, the heaven and the earth. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which are written in the books. <clears throat> are we really going to trust our works before a righteous and holy God? Come on. When we know that we're a sinner... We know that we've sinned. We know that we have not walked with God. We know that we've spit in his face by how we act. Move over. It's my life. I will deal with it. See, the fact that we are created beings, we are naturally accountable to our creator. That, and when we aren't accountable to him, that's rebellion. A father and a mother have a child. 
And by the seed of the father, that child comes in the world, and that child's rebellious against the father. That's rebellion. That's what we're looking at here. So they're standing before this holy God. The books were open. How fearful. You mean God knows everything? God knows all my heart. God knows everything I've thought, everything I've done. The prophets speak of this. God knows everything. He's everywhere. He's merciful. But you know what? You spit, your, you spit it in the, in the sight of his mercy, and you went on your own life. Now you're standing before him. Nobody's going to get away from this. Listen to this. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were those that are sitting right now outside of Christ, the dead, waiting for judgment. Death and Hades were cast in the lake of fire where the beast and, and the false prophet are. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. A deliverer. We saw in the prophets a coming one. Christ the Savior. God's the only Savior. Christ is the only Savior. Christ must be God. The ground is being set. Judgment's coming. And he's pleading and he's pleading and he's pleading with his people because judgment's coming. We need to wake up as a church and realize the deceitfulness of sin. And like the Word of God says in the Proverbs, we need to go to the ones that are stumbling to judgment and deal with it and be a light to them. And not shine away and not keep this Christianity within us. The prophets did that. Look at Jeremiah. Boy, he was put in the stocks. He was lowered down to the judgment. He was slapped. He was ostracized. And then he said, oh, God, I'm not going to speak about this anymore. I've had enough. I can't do this. And God, in his holy understanding, sat back and let the fire muse in Jeremiah's inner being to where he couldn't stop speaking because he knew his God. God is merciful, but there's a day of judgment coming. And this apostate church doesn't like to listen to that. But we have a righteous and holy God. And for us that love him and follow him and worship him, he reveals himself to us. Is that not worth everything? We not only have his presence in this life, we have life with him forever. Cam, would you pray, please? Thank you, Father Kevin, for the prophets, all of them speak of your undying love and also of your righteousness and justice. We thank you that you never change and that we that believe are encompassed and overwhelmed by your love and grace and mercy on a consistent basis. And we thank you for that. We thank you for uh, Jesus Christ, our creator and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>